thing. Well, a week ago, a week and a day ago, I was able to cover a story over at Global News, a bit of a... Well, it tugs at the heartstrings because it starts with a nine-year-old boy who just wanted to do something selfless, wanted to do something for a good cause, wanting to grow his hair to then be part of the annual Balding for Dollars charity. And well, joining me on the line is Tara Blackwell, Carson's mom. Tara, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, When I hear him say, I'm doing this for my mom and dad, it doesn't bug me that much. It breaks my heart (laughs) a little bit. I know. He is such a trooper. Like, he's probably one of the strongest human beings I know. And the fact that he's nine is just mind-blowing to me. <laughs> so so back up, for people who haven't heard this story before, What we know that Carson started growing his hair for, again, for Balding for Dollars to donate it in May. So what was happening? Um, basically, we'd kind of, uh, he already liked the long hair thing going on, and uh, he uh, was just trying to figure out if this is kind of where he wanted to go with his own style. Um, and I mentioned to him, you know, another local um, kiddo was doing something similar. And Carson was just super pumped about it. He was thought it was so cool. He's like, I can do that. And we were like, yeah, you can. Like, go for it. <laughs> and then he just did. <laughs> he hasn't stopped since. It's been about two years of growing his hair now. And, it, and his hair is long. And for people who have seen the story, he's got hair back about halfway down his back. It's longer at least. than my hair. I'm <laughs> jealous. It's <Yeah>. beautiful hair. <laughs> so what started happening with some of the other kids at his school? Um, yeah, it's a skate park and at school, people started to refer to him as Caitlin instead of Carson. So that was kind of hard for him. Um, you know, he tries to walk away and ignore it, but he also wants to, to be a boy and to not let people, uh, pick on him and pick on other people. Um, but it's just been, it's been really hard to see him come home sad when he's trying to do something that's so sweet. Um, and so that's why we've decided to cut it early. Uh, we're cutting it today, actually, which is a big deal. It's a very, very exciting day for us. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, we'll talk yeah. more about, about that coming up today. So it, and it sounds too, I mean, it sounds like he's putting on a pretty brave face about this, saying it doesn't really bug him. But it sounds like maybe it does bug him a little bit more than he's letting on. It definitely does. He just, um, yeah, he puts on this strong front because uh, I don't think he likes to see other people hurting for him. Um, and that's kind of where his dad and I were at and his stepmom. And we were just kind of, uh, it just, it's sad to see your kid come home crying and not to know exactly what you can do to make that better. Um, and so we've, that's why we've decided to cut it early. And I think, I think it's going to be a good thing for him. Um, but like he said, he's going to do it again. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> he's not stopping. He's just cutting it and going again. <laughs> And what happened with, with, so the kids who were doing this, because Surrey, like every other school district, has a very strict anti-bullying policy. I know you had mentioned the principal at the school is great. You were going to be meeting with them. What about the kids? Has there been any follow-up with these kids as to why they were doing this or, or to make them stop doing it? Um, yeah, actually, I don't even think that some of them realize that the way they're bugging him hurts so much. I think they just think they're being funny and silly and goofing around. Uh, but it does hurt. Words do hurt. No matter what people say, sticks and stones, like that's a good saying and all, but words still hurt. Um, and so it's really cool 
that we've had actually a couple parents and kids write letters um, to Carson to say, hey, you know what, man, I'm really sorry. I didn't even realize that what I was saying was having that effect on you. One little girl, she's such a sweetheart. She's donating her birthday money. She has $100 in birthday money, and she wrote him a letter, and she's donating that, and that's her apology. And Carson's just, like, over the moon. He was, like, blown away. I was blown away. Um, What a sweet kid. Amazing parents. Uh, that's the kind of stuff we're hoping to see. We're hoping that this is going to unite everybody and bring everybody together instead of causing division. Absolutely. Uh, did he consider at all after the, the story aired or after this got out there, like you said, maybe some of the kids didn't even realize how hurtful they were being. Did he consider continuing on and growing his hair until May? Yes, he definitely did. But uh, we had already set up um, the the haircutting and this this whole weekend is all about Carson. So um, he's just having an adventure weekend to, to make him feel super, super special and super important. Um, and yeah, no, he would keep going. He would 100% keep going. Um, but we're we're not going to let that happen right now. We just want to kind of end this this round of bullying and then maybe he can go to school make some really good friends and then the next time he goes back at it he'll have a bigger support system at school to to back him when something's not feeling right absolutely so uh, the the fundraising too so he's going to continue fundraising until may how, how is he doing as far as his goal for fundraising and where he's at now so he's, uh, I just started to collect the e-transfers. He's at about 9,135. Wow. That's I great. know. Considering we were at 1,050 when <sighs> I made that post. So, wow. Yeah. Were you, were you <laughs> expecting that it would get the attention that it's been getting? Not at all. I, I knew that my closest friends would share because they're all lovely. Um, <laughs> and then I thought maybe one or two of their friends would share. And I figured by like two or three days it would be done being shared. <laughs> so it's been uh, it's been a bit of a whirlwind over here trying to keep up with everything, but it's all good stuff. And, I, and I'm happy that it's turned out this way in, as far as the donations have been coming in and, and some a couple of the kids at least have said, well, I'm apologized or not realized it because I was worried that when we first did the story too, that it might have opened it up, opened him up to even more bullying or, or kids picking on him more. Totally. I was worried about that too, but it's been completely the opposite. Um, people have been amazing. He's made more friends at school. People have been reaching out just to just people who who have gone through this situation um, at Balding for Dollars and have used them for their, you know, um, the finances that kids get to, to raise for them. Those families have been reaching out and Carson's just feeling like a million dollars. <laughs> Which I, I guess that's kind of the silver lining is he, he was already doing something selfless and he was doing something so great and something that turned a little bit ugly has now gone completely again the other direction. It's like magical. It's so cool to see him every day. And I read him the posts and I read him all of the little notes that he gets. And he just like you could just see the little fire inside of him burning brighter and brighter and brighter. Like it's super cool. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So he's going uh, when I talked to him last, he said buzz cut. Is that still the plan for today? It is still the plan. Yesterday he said I could go all the way bald. And I said, (laughs) It is winter, so your head might be a little cold. I'm like, you might want to go buzz cut, but it is up to him. Once we get there, if he decides that he wants to shave it, shave it, then he can go to town. <laughs> and and his hair is it still is it still going to BC Children's Hospital? Yeah, it is actually. Balding for Dollars is coming 
through the haircutting today. They've been amazing. Uh, they sent us to Peter Pan last night just as like Aww. a fun little thing. Yeah, so they've been phenomenal. Um, and uh, he's really excited to, to finally meet them in person. And they're totally going to be there and they're going to take the hair with them. And uh, I would love for him to to uh, you know, get to meet some of the kids that get to, that get to benefit from from the hair. That would be so 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 cool, right? Because by doing this, he doesn't he's well, he won't be part of the big cut in May and the big fundraiser itself. Will he still be able to go? He's been invited. Yeah, they, he is very much invited, and they still want him to feel um, a part of the event. And he's going to be up on stage with everybody else. Um, they're, they're definitely not uh, cutting him out of this at all. Well, that's great. Uh, now, do you are you asking for people to come out today, or is it more of a quiet event? What's going to be happening today? Um, we do have some friends coming um, and a couple of people that we've actually never met before who've been following the story. They are going to be coming out. Um, I'm kind of leaving it up to what other people want to do. It's a no pressure to- to- kind of thing, but uh, Carson's really excited for, for whoever does show up. <laughs> oh, all right. And is there a website or a link if people want to donate or learn more about uh, his fundraising or uh, see that kind of thing? Is there a place where people can go? Yeah, he has an Instagram page, and we keep that updated with all of his amazing hair shots. And uh, that's K-Man for Kids. It's K-M-A-N, and then the number four, and K-I-D-Z. And we also have a link right on his profile that will take you to the donation page. All right. Well, what do you think What do you think the, the main um, lesson is, or, the, or what he's coming out kind of the other side of this is? I mean, I would imagine when, when a nine-year-old or a young kid goes to do this, you, I mean, already they're doing something selfless and doing something great. What do you think his big message is coming out of this? Kindness prevails. Mm. Like, you know, he made a good choice. And even though it wasn't always the easiest journey, his good choice is now going to help so many people. He's got friends from this and, and yeah, kindness just really does prevail. So do the right thing because in the end, it's going to work out for you. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a great message. Uh, Tara, thank you so much for joining us today and good luck on the haircut today. I'm sure there will be some uh, TV cameras there as well. Uh, it would be a great event, but thanks so much for joining us to bring us up to date. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. Well, when NASA launches the first mission in its next phase of lunar exploration next year, there's going to be a big contribution from Canada. Artemis 1, the first of several missions and what amounts to NASA's first major moon push since the Apollo missions years and years ago. Now, when Artemis takes off, the uncrewed mission will spend 48 days in space. It will make multiple orbits around the moon and it will be carrying a trillion yeast and algae cells inside the Orion capsule. And that is one which researchers at UBC say could one day prepare humans for all kinds of things. And joining me to talk more about this is Corey Nislow, Professor of Pharmaceutical Sciences at UBC. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. Good morning. I find it fascinating that we're sending this. And I, I mean, it's tough for somebody not in a science field to even try and picture a trillion yeast and algae cells. But what can we learn from doing this? Well, um, the the goal of the mission for us um, uh, is to understand um, how organisms, um, uh, in this case, yeast and algae, but uh, eventually humans, um, can live and not only live, but thrive in the environment that's outer space because we actually haven't left lower Earth orbit um, 
in decades. We've been going up and down to the International Space Station and learning a lot about the effects of microgravity. But the space station is in a very protected part of outer space. Um, And so it's shielded by the Earth's magnetic field from cosmic radiation. And and what is and so the cosmic radiation then is will the yeast and the algae be exposed to that and we'll be able to learn about exposure or learn what exactly it does? Exactly. Um, so once you leave um, the magnetic field, uh, you're now um, the the capsule and our experiments, our yeast and, and algae, are now exposed to the full force of the solar wind, which contains highly charged particles. Um, that is cosmic radiation, and that cosmic radiation is nothing to uh, trifle with. It, get, it goes through everything and gets into our cells and interacts um, and potentially damages our DNA and our proteins. So what we're trying to do is figure out what genes are important for survival in those conditions um, so that we can then share that information with what we know about human biology. And is uh, cosmic radiation and solar radiation, are those different? Um, so... Uh, Cosmic radiation is one component that we don't entirely understand that's part of solar radiation. But we can mimic those parts of solar radiation on the ground, and we're doing the best we can, but there's nothing like going and experiencing the real thing, which is what crew members, men and women who go to the moon and Mars, will experience. Hmm. Now, yeast, taking a look at yeast and algae, which is going there. So yeast, am I, am I right in saying it shares about 50% of its genes with humans? Um, you're absolutely right. And so despite the fact that we're a billion years separated from our yeast cousins uh, uh, over a billion years of evolution, uh, we do have a common ancestor. And as you've mentioned, half of our genes not only are shared by yeast, but I can take the, a gene out of my body or my DNA, put it into yeast, and it'll function just fine. So the, the idea or the hope is that anything we learn from yeast can be um, extrapolated with a little bit of translation to human biology. So if the yeast is damaged or if the genes in the yeast are damaged or how they stand up, we should get a better picture on how humans would stand up? Yeah, the logic is pretty straightforward. We look at what, what genes are important in yeast and algae, We find their counterparts in human cells, and then we see what can we do to boost the activity of those human genes, either with drugs, um, therapeutics, or exercise, or food, any way to boost the activity and um, provide a countermeasure, a natural countermeasure to uh, crew members. And is it the same type thing with algae? Are we learning the same kinds of things? Well, algae, we're also about a billion years apart from algae, but we have an additional request of the algae, and that is when you're doing these long, multi-month, multi-year missions, we're going to need to bring food and fuel. Uh, I mean, make, sorry, make food and fuel. And algae are probably the best fuel makers on the planet. So if we can learn how algae thrive in space, and what genes are most important for fuel production um, will be better suited for those longer uh, missions. And you mentioned, too, that, that we were not able to really replicate cosmic radiation or, or make it here to figure out exactly what kind of uh, an impact it has or what kind of effect it has. Uh, so have we tried to do that or are we, are we trying to do it on, on Earth but just oh, can't? Oh. 
we we're trying and it's not a matter of we can't it's a matter of incomplete knowledge um so we have colleagues in japan and germany that have access to particle accelerators that can produce very high energy ions we know that those are parts of cosmic radiation but the fact of the matter is is that cosmic radiation on any particular day will vary kind of like the weather like the sun's weather so we can uh, with our ground control experiments, we can prepare as well as possible, but we will never know the exact mix of what's in cosmic radiation on any one particular day. So we really have to be overprepared. And how long will it take once things are launched and, and the yeast and the algae goes on this mission? How long until we start seeing some results? Well, um, that's up to our lab. And so it, it, we're scheduled to launch in November of 2020. We'll have the samples back two months later. Then it'll take about a month to um, um, extract and analyze the data. And then, so we're looking at a Christmas present, hopefully, uh, for this time next year. <laughs> that actually seems not that far away or not that, um, that huge amount of time to get some pretty interesting results. The time is going to fly, <laughs> and we're really excited. And and is the goal then, I mean, is it too far-fetched to say the idea is this could help? Like you said, it might lead to drugs or something that could help humans live on the moon or live on different planets? Well, we have a good, um, we have a good history with yeast in that yeast has provided two things with regards to drugs. It has helped us discover how drugs like rapamycin, the uh, longevity drug, works Um and yeast also produces drugs that are very effective, say the statins for lowering blood pressure. So it's a stretch and it's aspirational, but I don't think it's too far-fetched. And even when you talk about specialized drugs, I mean, we talk about radiation and we tend to talk about it being a negative thing, but we also use radiation in medical treatments and such. Is there room, do you think, in an experiment like this or a study like this to learn more about that? Well, um, the, the beauty of this experiment, at least I'm, I'm biased, but the beauty of this experiment is we learn both um, negative effects and positive effects. The organism, the yeast tells us the answer. So um, in principle, absolutely. All right. And how do you pick then what specific yeast and what algae goes on this mission? Well, that's another great um, question. We don't. There are 6,000 genes in yeast we're sending mutants for every single one of them. So we're unbiased. We're letting the yeast tell us which genes it are important for survival. Hmm. And is it, but is it coming from Canada? Because I know other countries are involved in this as well. Um, there uh, are, we have collaborators in the U.S., Japan, uh, Germany. Um, there, are the, there are four experiments on, on Artemis One. Two of them are being done in our lab, um, and two others are being are coming from labs in the U.S. All right. Uh, you said the time is going to fly. I think you're absolutely right. So I look forward to checking back with you and finding out what happens with this. Will you be doing? Will you be getting any updates as it's happening, or is it all waiting for it to come back and and figuring out what's happened at that point? The updates will will be of uh, no news is good news variety. If everything goes smoothly, we'll just collect the samples in November. But I would be delighted to share with you our results once we get them. All right. I look forward to it. Uh, Professor Nislow, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
Well, if you enjoy crosswords, you might already know that today is crossword puzzle day. Yes, it falls on December 21st. And the O Canada Crosswords book is celebrating a pretty big anniversary. The 20th anniversary edition of the book is out. The numbers are pretty staggering. O Canada Crosswords, the series now has 1,570 crosswords, 179,000 clues, and 250,000 copies sold. So a lot of people in Canada like their crosswords. Well, joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Gwen Shogren, who is a creator of Crosswords. Gwen, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me on, Jill. I know we've talked to you before, but I must say I've, I've completely forgotten. How did you first get involved with making crosswords? Well, I was a long-time solver from the time I was a little kid, and uh, the time in my life came when I was out of the workforce looking after my little kids, and I decided, well, if I can solve them, maybe I can make them. So I took a shot at it, and here I am, 15 books later, (laughs) and I'm still working on them today. Did it come to you quite naturally, or was it difficult? I think, like most people, you kind of find your niche. You find your thing that you're good at. I've always been a word person. I majored in English at university. I worked as a writer, so words have always been part of my life. And certainly that's um, probably the biggest joy of putting the books together. It's, uh, you know, getting the grids working. That's the hard part, but the really fun part is writing the clues. Uh, Exactly. So where do you come up with the ideas for the clues? Well, I feel very lucky after all this time that I still do get ideas, but frankly, given my age, whenever I get an idea, I have to write it down so that I don't forget. Sometimes it's really just, you know, hard slogging, what haven't I touched on, what themes haven't I done, and of course, a lot of research at the front end, but quite often it's it's really just a word will tweak me to an idea or something I read especially about Canada or people from Canada, and um, the ideas just flow from there. And part of the reason the the Canadian, this book, first even came to be so many years ago was because there were so many puzzles, I think, with American clues and asking for, you know, the capitals of, of states and things that were very U.S.-driven. So is it is it easier for you, or is that what makes it more interesting, is focusing more on Canadian words? Well, I usually say I probably wouldn't necessarily be in this business if I wasn't focusing on the Canadiana. Uh, It is true that, um, you know, probably 21 years ago, a fellow named Julian Ross, who was the publisher of Bluefield Books, walked into a bookstore and had probably the same reaction as a lot of Canadians did. There was a lot of crossword books, but there was no Canadian crossword books. So he had the vision all those years ago, um, not only to create books that had Canadian content, but he was also looking for... I don't know, sort of like the whole Canadian package. So, for example, every single book in the series has always had the design of the Maple Leafs on the cover and a screened map of Canada. But more importantly, they also feature folk art pieces from galleries out on the east coast of the country. So he was looking for the whole, you know, the whole kit and caboodle, not just the content. And originally, I think they were looking at, you know, 10 to 15 percent of Canadian clues in the book. I've actually worked very hard in the last few books to get that way up over 20 percent. So the current book has 12,756 clues and 21.10 percent of them are Canadian. (laughs) Very nice. Uh, Do you have some go-to clues or go-to words that make putting the puzzles together easier? 
I wouldn't say go two words, but it's actually kind of funny now because in total, I, I've been on this series, O Canada Crosswords, since book 12. And I also did another series earlier on that had six books. So I've always tried to do um, a, pro, a province puzzle or a territory puzzle in each book, except now I've done so many books, I've run out of provinces and territories because there's only 13, so I'm probably going to have to start again. And it's the same thing I usually try and do, like I call it a destination somewhere. Um, and uh, that covers off all the um, the major cities in Canada. So again, I'm kind of starting to run out of cities. So actually in the current book, there is a puzzle on destination Vancouver. But I've kind of had to start scraping a little bit more. I may have to go back and redo some of those themes because I run out of places. <laughs> well, that's no good. Um, I, I would imagine people, you, you probably get asked this in that everything these days is technology is, is making its way in and automation. Uh, do people think that crosswords are, are automated or generated by a computer model? Well, I hope they don't think that with my stuff because, yes, absolutely, the computer helps you uh, with the grid. Um, in the old days, I used to design the grids by hand, which was horrible because my that side of my brain where you have to see, you know, the symmetrical black squares and where they go, my brain just didn't work that way. So from that perspective, the software is really helpful. But the software doesn't think of the themes for you. And it's true there's a lot of built-in clues in the software for all the words in the database, but I try not to use that so often because it's not very much fun and it's certainly it won't be Canadianized. Right, of course. Um, do, now, when you're talking crosswords, is it the traditional crossword? Because I, I, there tends to be a big disagreement I see out there with people who are avid crossword puzzle solvers. You're either you like the traditional or you like the cryptic, but very few people like both. You're absolutely right about that. My, my father... Um, who's been gone for many years, he was a big cryptic solver. And that DNA absolutely did not pass down to me. I cannot solve a cryptic puzzle to save my life. So yes, um, cryptics are generally more um, thought to have originated in England, whereas the other style of puzzle, which we do, I do, is we call that the North American style. I would totally agree there may not be too many people who can do both, and also, you may not find too many people who would do crosswords and Sudoku, right? Hmm. Interesting. But yeah, with the word letters and numbers, there's not a huge crossover there? Not for me, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you said that about cryptic crosswords, because the odd time I've tried to do them, I just end up feeling like I missed it or I don't have that gene because I can never do them either. So that it's makes me feel... just because in cryptics, the clue style is completely different. You could absolutely Google, you know, the types of clues. So for example, in a cryptic puzzle, you might have a seven-word clue and the answer would pinch two letters from each of those seven words to give you a 14-letter answer. There's a lot of anagrams. There's a lot of really weird kind of wordplay. So it's just a totally different genre. They're both called crosswords, but they're completely different. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, do you do clues that, because some crosswords have, their, it's, a, it's a strict one-word answer. Others will give you the clue if it gives you the letter count, like two words, four and three. Do you do that, or do you have a specific style? No, 
cryptics do that. Cryptics always tell you how many words in the answer and how many letters, probably because they're so hard, they're trying to give you an extra hint. I used to do that in the old days, but I kind of take the, the attitude that solvers are pretty smart, probably mm-hmm. smarter than me, and they'll be able to figure it out. So you would get that in sort of like much easier puzzles and some of the puzzle magazines you might get that where it's going to tell you two words or three words. But no, I, I generally rely on your brain to figure that out. Have you ever had to give up on a puzzle because it just wasn't working? Oh, yeah. Yep. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's frustrating because you waste a lot of time uh, doing that. It's kind of hard to explain, but like the first step is to come up with the idea for a puzzle, right? And then you plunk into the grid, you know, anywhere from six to ten words that you want to use if there's a theme. And then you press the button and the rest of the words and letters in the grid will fill in, right? Mm Mm-hmm. However, sometimes that process of just getting what I call a workable grid, you know, the first thing I do is look at all the words. And if there's um, words in it that I don't like, I have to change those and move stuff around. Even this morning, I was designing a puzzle and there was a word I absolutely did not want in a puzzle. So I had to go back and change it. So yes, I have, I have had to give up. It's, it's frustrating. I try not to, but sometimes it happens. Do you ever have crossword puzzle nightmares? <laughs> you know, I can't even think I've ever had a dream about a crossword. <laughs> now that you're asking me that, I don't think so. I certainly have nightmares when I'm designing them sometimes, like I say, because sometimes it goes wrong. And, you know, most of the time I do larger puzzles and people often ask me, you know, how long does it take to do a puzzle? Well, it just depends on how it goes. Like one puzzle can take when you factor in the research and getting the grid and writing the clues, it can take you know, six to eight hours to do one puzzle. So, yeah, that gives me nightmares. (laughs) All right. Final question. Do you do other crossword puzzles? Do you try and solve them? I solve so many of my own because I self-solve, but usually every year I go on holidays for two weeks and the place I go gets a newspaper every day. And sometimes there's up to four crosswords in those newspapers. So that's when I'll actually fold them up and keep them and I'll solve them on the plane on my way home. (laughs) But generally, no, only because I don't want to subconsciously steal somebody else's theme or somebody's clues. So trying to keep it fresh for myself. But yes, I really do enjoy solving that two weeks of the year when I do it. All right. We will leave it there. We're out of time. Gwen Shogun, Shogun, thank you so much for joining us again and happy crossword day to you. Same to everybody out there. Enjoy your crosswords today.